Chapter Twenty, Part One of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty, The Silent Tower. One. The fount of riches and the terror of the departments, clothed in the latest pattern of sumptuous pyjamas, lay in the midst of his magnificent and spacious bed, and with the shaded electric globe over his brow. Gazed at the splendours of the vast bedroom which Eve had allotted to him. It was full, but not too full, of the finest directoire furniture, and the walls were covered with all manner of engravings and watercolours. Evidently, this apartment had been the lair of the real owner and creator of the great home. Mr. Prohack could appreciate the catholicity and sureness of taste which it displayed. He liked the cornice as well as the form of the dressing table. And the Cumberland landscape of C. J. Holmes, as well as the large Piranesi etching of an imaginary prison, which latter particularly interested him because it happened to be an impression between two states, a detail which none but a true amateur could savour. The prison depicted was a terrible place of torment, but it was beautiful, and the view of it made Mr. Prohack fancy, very absurdly, that he too was in prison, just as securely as if he'd been bolted and locked therein. His eye ranged about the room and saw nothing that was not lovely and that he did not admire. Yet he derived little or no authentic pleasure from what he beheld, partly because it was the furnishing of a prison, and partly because he did not own it. He had often preached against the mania for owning things, but now, and even more clearly than when he had sermonized Paul Spinner, he perceived and hated to perceive that ownership was probably an essential ingredient of most enjoyments. The man, foolishly priding himself on being a philosopher, was indeed a fleshly mass of strange inconsistencies. More important, he was losing the assurance that he would sleep soundly that night. He could not drag his mind off his co-heiress and his co-heir. The sense of humiliation of being intimately connected and classed with them would not leave him. He felt himself, absurdly once again, to be mysteriously associated with them in a piece of sharp practice. Or even of knavery. They constituted another complication of his existence. He wanted to disown them and never to speak to them again, but he knew that he could not disown them. He was living in gorgeousness for the sole reason that he and they were in the same boat. Eve came in, opening the door cautiously at first, and then rushing forward as soon as she saw that the room was not in darkness. He feared for an instant that she might upbraid him for deserting her. But no, triumphant happiness sat on her forehead, and affectionate concern for him was in her eyes. She plumped down in her expensive radiance on the bed by his side. Well, said he, I'm so glad you decided to go to bed, said she. You must be tired, and late nights don't suit you. I just slipped away for a minute to see if you were all right, are you? She puckered her shining brow exactly as of old, and bent and kissed him as of old. One of her best kisses. But the queer fellow, though touched by her attention, did not like her being so glad that he had gone to bed. The alleged philosopher would have preferred her to express some dependence upon his manly support in what was for her a tremendous event. I feel I shall sleep, he lied. I'm sure you will, darling, she agreed. Don't you think it's all been a terrific success? she asked naively. He answered, smiling. 
I'm dying to see the daily picture tomorrow. I think I shall tell the newsagent in future only to deliver it on the days when you're in it. Don't be silly, she said, too pleased with herself, however, to resent his irony. She was clothed in mail that night against all his shafts. He admitted, what he had always secretly known, that she was an elementary creature. She would have been just at home in the Stone Age as in the twentieth century, and perhaps more at home. Was Lady Masulum equally elementary? No? Yes? Still, Eve was necessary to him. Only up to a short while ago she had been his complement, whereas now he appeared to be her complement. He, the philosopher and the source of domestic wisdom, was fully aware, in a superior and lofty manner, that she was the eternal child deceived by toys, gewgaws, and illusions. Nevertheless, he was, he was only her complement, the indispensable husband, and pay her out. She was succeeding without any brainwork from him. He noticed that she was not wearing the pearls he had given her. No doubt she had merely forgotten at the last moment to put them on. She was continually forgetting them and leaving them about. But this negligent woman was the organiser-in-chief of the great soiree. Well, if it had succeeded, she was lucky. "'I must run off,' said she, starting up, busy, proud, falsely calm, the general of a victorious army as the battle draws to a close. She embraced him again, and he actually felt comforted. She was gone. "'As I grow older,' he reflected, "'I am hanged if I don't understand life less and less.' He was listening to the distant rhythm of the music when he mistily comprehended that there was no music, and that the sounds in his ear were not musical. He could not believe that he had been asleep and had awakened, but the facts were soon too much for his delusion, and he said with the air of a discoverer, I have been asleep, and turned on the light. There were voices and footsteps in the corridors or on the landing, whispers, loud and yet indistinct talking, tones indicating that the speakers were excited, if not frightened and that their thoughts had been violently wrenched away from the pursuit of pleasure. His watch showed two o'clock. The party was over, the last automobile had departed, and probably even the tireless Eliza Fiddle was asleep in her new home. Next Mr. Prohack noticed that the door of his room was ajar. He had no anxiety. Rather he felt quite gay and careless the more so as he had wakened up with the false sensation of complete refreshment produced by short, heavy slumber. He thought, "'Whatever has happened, I have had and shall have nothing to do with it, and they must deal with the consequences themselves as best they can.' And, as a measure of precaution against being compromised, he switched off the light. He heard Eve's voice, surprisingly near his door. "'I simply daren't tell him. No, I daren't.' The voice was considerably agitated, but he smiled maliciously to himself, thinking, "'Can't be anything very awful, because she only talks in that strain when it's nothing at all. She loves to pretend she's afraid of me. And moreover, I can't believe there's anything on earth she daren't tell me.' He heard another voice, reasoning in reply, that resembled Mimi's. "'Hadn't that girl gone home yet?' And he heard Sissy's voice, and Charlie's but for him all these were inarticulate. Then his room was filled with swift, blinding light. Somebody had put a hand through the doorway and turned the light on. It must be Eve. It was Eve, scared and distressed, but still in complete war-paint. 
"'I'm so relieved you're awake, Arthur,' she said, approaching the bed, as though she anticipated the bed would bite her. "'I'm not awake. I'm asleep, officially. My poor girl, you've ruined the finest night I was ever going to have in all my life.' She ignored his complaint, absolutely. "'Arthur,' she said, her face twitching in every direction, and all her triumph falling from her, "'Arthur, I've lost my pearls. They've gone. Someone must have taken them.' Mr. Brohack's reaction to this piece of more-than-midnight news was to break into hearty and healthy laughter. He appeared to be genuinely diverted, and when Eve protested against such an attitude, he said, "'My child, anything that strikes you as funny after being wakened up at two in the morning is very funny, very funny indeed. How can I help laughing?' Eve thereupon began to cry weakly. "'Come here, please,' said he. And she came and sat on the bed, but how differently from the previous visit! She was now beaten by circumstances, and she turned for aid to his alleged more powerful mind and deeper wisdom. In addition to being amused, the man was positively happy, because he was no longer a mere compliment. So he comforted her, and put his hands on her shoulders. "'Don't worry,' said he gently and after all I'm not surprised the necklace has been pinched. Not surprised, Arthur? No, you collect here half the notorious spart people in London. Fifty percent of them go through one or other of the courts. Five percent of them end by being detected criminals, and goodness knows what percent end by being undetected criminals. Possibly two percent treat marriage seriously, and possibly one percent is not in debt. That's the atmosphere you created, and it's an atmosphere in which pearls are apt to melt away. Hence, I am not surprised, and you mustn't be. Still, it would be interesting to know how the things melted away. Were you wearing them? Of course I was wearing them. There was nothing finer here to-night. That I saw. You hadn't got them on when you came in here before? Hadn't I? said Eve, thoughtful. No, you hadn't. Then why didn't you tell me? Eve demanded suddenly, almost fiercely, through her tears, withdrawing her shoulders from his hands. "'Well,' said Mr. Prohack, "'I thought you'd know what you'd got on, or what you hadn't got on.' "'I think you might have told me. If you had, perhaps the—' Mr. Prohack put his hand over her mouth. "'Stop,' said he. "'My sweet child, I can save you a lot of trouble. It's all my fault. If I hadn't been a miracle of stupidity, the necklace would never have disappeared. This point being agreed to, let us go on to the next. When did you find out your sad loss?' It was Miss Winstock who asked me what I'd done with my necklace. I put my hand to my throat, and it was gone. It must have come undone. Didn't you say to me a fortnight or so ago that the little safety chain had gone wrong? Did I? said Eve innocently. Did you have the safety chain repaired? I was going to have it done tomorrow. You see, if I'd sent it to be done today, then I couldn't have worn the necklace tonight, could I? Very true, Mr. Browick concurred. But who could have taken it? Ah, are you sure that it isn't lying on the floor somewhere? Every place where I've been has been searched thoroughly. It's quite certain that it must have been picked up and pocketed. Then, by a man, seeing that women have no pockets except their husbands, I'm beginning to feel quite a, like a detective already. By the way, lady, the notion of giving a reception in a house like this without a detective disguised as a guest was rather grotesque. But of course I had detectives— Eve burst out. I had two private ones. I thought one ought to be enough. But as soon as the agents saw the inventory of knack-knick-knacks and things, they advised me to have two men. 
One of them's here still. In fact, he's waiting to see you. The Scotland Yard people are very annoying. They've refused to do anything until morning. That Eve should have engaged detectives was something of a blow to the masculine superiority of Mr. Prohack. However, he kept himself in countenance by convincing himself in secret that she had not thought of the idea. The idea must have been given to her by another person, probably Mimi, who nevertheless was also a woman. "'And do you seriously expect me to interview a detective in the middle of the night?' demanded Mr. Prohack. "'He said he should like to see you. But, of course, if you don't feel equal to it, my poor boy, I'll tell him so.' "'What does he want to see me for? I've nothing to do with it, and I know nothing.' "'He says that as you bought the necklace he must see you, and the sooner the better.' This new aspect of the matter seemed to make Mr. Prohack rather thoughtful. 3. Eve brought in to her husband, who had improved his moral stamina and his physical charm by means of the finest of his dressing-gowns, a dark, thin young man, clothed to marvellous perfection, with a much-loved moustache, and looking as fresh as if he was just going to a party. Mr. Prohack, of course, recognised him as one of the guests. "'Good morning,' said Mr. Prohack. "'So you are the detective?' Uh, "'Yes, sir,' answered the detective, formally. "'Do you know, all the evening, I was under the impression that you were the first secretary to the Czechoslovakian legation?' "'No, sir,' answered the detective, formally. "'Well, well, I think there is a proverb to the effect that appearances are deceptive.' "'Is there indeed, sir?' said the detective, with unshaken gravity. "'In our business we think that appearances ought to be deceptive.' "'Now, talking of your business,' Mr. Prohack remarked, with one of his efforts to be very persuasive, "'what about this unfortunate affair?' "'Yes, sir, what about it?' The detective looked askance at Eve. "'I suppose there's no doubt the thing's been stolen. By the way, sit on the end of the bed, will you? Then you'll be near me.' "'Yes, sir,' said the detective, sitting down. "'There is no doubt the necklace has been removed by someone, either for a nefarious purpose or for a joke.' "'Ha! Huh, a joke?' meditated Mr. Prohack aloud. "'It certainly hasn't been taken for a joke,' said Eve warmly. "'Nobody that I know well enough for them to play such a trick would dream of playing it.' "'Then,' said Mr. Prohack, "'we are left all alone with the nefarious purpose. "'I had a sort of a notion that I should meet the nefarious purpose, and here it is. "'I suppose there's little hope.' "'Well, sir, you know what happens to a stone and pearl necklace. "'The pearls are separated.' They can be sold at once, one at a time, or they can be kept for years and then sold. Pearls, except the very finest, leave no trace when they get a fair start. "'What I can't understand,' Eve exclaimed, "'is how it could have dropped off without me noticing it.' "'Oh, I can easily understand that,' said Mr. Prohack, with a peculiar intonation. "'I've known ladies lose even their hair without noticing anything,' said the detective firmly, "'not to mention other items.' "'But without anybody else noticing it, either?' Eve pursued her own train of thought. "'Somebody did notice it,' said the detective, writing on a small piece of paper. "'Who?' "'The person who took the necklace.' "'Well, of course I know that,' Eve spoke impatiently. "'But who can it be? I feel sure it's one of the new servants, or one of the hard waiters.' "'In our business, madam, we usually suspect servants and waiters last.' Then, turning round very suddenly, he demanded, "'Who's that at the door?' Eve, startled, moved towards the door, and in the same instant the detective put a small piece of paper into Mr. Prohack's lap. 
Mr. Brohack read on the paper, "'Should like to see you alone.' The detective picked up the paper again. Mr. Brohack laughed joyously within himself. "'There's nobody at the door,' said Eve. "'How you frightened me!' "'Marion,' said Mr. Brohack, fully inspired, "'take my keys off there, will you, and go to my study and unlock the top right-hand drawer of the big desk. You'll find a blue paper at the top of the back. Bring it to me. I don't know which is the right key, but you'll soon see.' And when Eve, eager with her important mission, had departed, Mr. Brohack continued to the detective, "'Pretty good, that, eh, for an improvisation? The key of that drawer isn't on that ring at all. And even if she does manage to open the drawer, there's no blue paper in there at all. She'll be quite some time.' The detective stared at Mr. Brohack in a way to reduce his facile self-satisfaction. "'What I wish to know from you, sir, personally, is whether you want this affair to be hushed up or not.' "'Hushed up?' repeated Mr. Prohack, to whom the singular suggestion opened out new and sinister avenues of speculation. Why hushed up? Most of the cases we deal with have to be hushed up sooner or later, answered the detective. I only wanted to know where I was. How interesting your work must be, observed Mr. Prohack, with quick, sympathetic enthusiasm. I expect you love it. How did you get into it? Did you serve an apprenticeship? I've often wondered about you, private detective. It's a marvellous life. I got into it through meeting a man in the Piccadilly Tube. As for liking it, I shouldn't like any work. But some people love their work. So I've heard, said the detective sceptically. Then I take it you do want the matter smothered? But you've telephoned to Scotland Yard about it, said Mr. Prohack. We can't hush it up after that. I told them, replied the detective grimly, indicating with his head the whole world of the house. I told them I was telephoning to Scotland Yard, but I wasn't. I was telephoning to our head office. Then am I to take it you want to find out all you can, but you want it smothered? And not at all. I have no reason for hushing anything up. The detective gazed at him in a harsh, lower-middle-class way, and Mr. Brohack quailed a little before that glance. Would you please tell me where you bought the necklace? Oh, I really forget. Somewhere in Bond Street. Oh, I see, said the detective. A necklace of forty-nine pearls, over half of them stated to be as big as peas, and it slipped your memory where you bought it. The detective yawned. And I'm afraid I haven't kept the receipt either, said Mr. Prohack. I have an idea the firm went out of business soon after I bought the necklace. At least, I seem to remember noticing the shop shut up and then opening again of something else. "'No jeweller ever goes out of business in Bond Street,' said the detective, and yawned once more. "'Well, Miss Prohack, I don't think I need trouble you any more to-night. If you or Mrs. Prohack will call at our head office during the course of to-morrow, you shall have our official report, and if anything really fresh should turn up, I'll telephone you immediately. Good night, Mr. Prohack.' The man bowed rather awkwardly as he rose from the bed, and departed. "'That chap thinks there's something fishy between Eve and me.' reflected Mr. Prohack. "'I wonder whether there is.' But he was still in high spirits when Eve came back into the room. "'The sleuth-hound has fled,' said he. "'I must have given him something to think about.' "'I've tried all the keys, and none of them will fit,' Eve complained. "'And yet you're always grumbling at me for not keeping my keys in order. "'If you wanted to show him the blue paper, why have you let him go?' "'My dear,' said Mr. Prohack, "'I didn't let him go. He did not consult me, but merely and totally went.' 
"'And what is the blue paper?' Eve demanded. "'Well, supposing it was the receipt for what I paid for the pearls.' "'Oh, I see. But how would that help?' "'It wouldn't help,' Mr. Brahack replied. "'My broken butterfly, you may as well know the worst. The sleuth-hound doesn't hold out much hope.' "'Yes,' said Eve, "'and you seem delighted that I've lost my pearls. I know what it is. You think it would be a lesson for me, and you love people to have lessons. Why, anybody might lose a necklace.' True, ships are wrecked, and necklaces are lost, and Nelson even lost his eye. And I'm sure it was one of the servants. My child, you can be just as happy without a pearl necklace as with one. You really aren't a woman who cares for vulgar display. Moreover, in times like these, when society seems to be toppling over, what is a valuable necklace except a source of worry? Felicity is not to be obtained by the— Eve screamed. Arthur! If you go on like that, I shall run straight out of the house and take cold in the square. I will give you another necklace, Mr. Brevac answered this threat, and as her face did not immediately clear, he added, and a better one. I don't want another one, said Eve. I'd sooner be without one. I know it was all my own fault, but you're horrid, and I can't make you out, and I never could make you out. I never did know where I am with you, and I believe you're hiding something from me. I believe you picked up the necklace, and that's why you sent the detective away." Mr. Brohag had to assume his serious voice, which always carried conviction to Eve, and which he had never misused. "'I haven't picked your necklace up. I haven't seen it, and I know nothing about it.' Then he changed again. "'And if you'll kindly step forward and kiss me good morning, I'll try to snatch a few moments' unconsciousness.' Four. Mr. Brahack's life at this wonderful period of his career as a practising philosopher at grips with the great world seemed to be a series of violent awakenings. He was awakened with even increased violence at about eight o'clock the next, or rather the same, morning, and he would have been awakened earlier if the servants had got up earlier. The characteristic desire of the servants to rise early had, however, been enfeebled by the jolly vigils of the previous night. It was, of course, Eve who rushed into him, Nobody else would have dared. She had hastily cast about her plumpness the transformed Chinese gown, which had the curious appearance of a survival from some former incarnation. "'Arthur!' she called, and positively shook the victim. "'Arthur!' Mr. Bragg looked at her, dazed by the electric light which she had ruthlessly turned on over his head. "'There's a woman being caught in the area. She's a fat woman, and she must have been there all night.' The cook locked the area gate, and the woman was too fat to climb over. Brules put her in the servants' hall and fastened the door. What do you think we ought to do first? Send for the police, or telephone to Mr. Crude? He's the detective you saw last night. "'If she's been in the area all night, you'd better put her to bed and give her some hot brandy and water,' said Mr. Prohack. "'Arthur, please, please be serious,' Eve supplicated. I'm being as serious as a man can who has been disturbed in this pleasant fashion by a pretty woman," said Mr. Brohack, attentively examining the ceiling. "'You go and look after the fat lady. Supposing she dies from exposure? There'd have to be an inquest. Do you wish to be mixed up in an inquest? What does she want? Whatever it is, give it to her and let her go, and wake me up next week. I feel I can sleep a bit." "'Arthur, you'll drive me mad. Can't you see that she must be connected with the necklace business? She must be. It's as clear as daylight. Ah, breathed Mr. Brohack, thoughtfully interested. I'd forgotten the necklace business. 
"'Yes, when I hadn't,' said Eve, rather shrewishly. "'I had not.' "'Quite possibly she may be mixed up in the necklace business,' Mr. Prohack admitted. "'She may be a clue. Look here, don't let's tell anybody outside, not even Mr. Crude. Let's detect for ourselves. It'll be the greatest fun. What does she say for herself?' "'She said she was waiting outside the house to catch a young lady with a snub nose going away from my reception. Mimi Winstock, of course.' "'Why Mimi Winstock?' "'Well, hasn't she got a turned-up nose? "'And she didn't go away from my reception. "'She's sleeping here,' Eve rejoined triumphantly. "'And what else does the fat woman say?' "'She says she won't say anything else except to Mimi Winstock.' "'Well, then, wake up Mimi as you wakened her me, "'and sent her to the servants' hall, wherever that is. "'I've never seen it myself.' "'Eve shook her somewhat tousled head vigorously. "'Certainly not.' I don't trust Miss Mimi Winstock, not one bit. I'm not going to let those two meet until you've had a talk with the burglar. Me? Mr. Prohack protested. Yes, you. Seeing that you don't want me to send for the police, something has to be done, and somebody has to do it. And I never did trust that Mimi Winstock, and I'm very sorry she's gone to Charlie. That was a great mistake. However, it's got nothing to do with me. She shrugged her agreeable shoulders. "'But my necklace has got something to do with me.' Mr. Prohack thought, "'What would Lady Massillon do in such a crisis? "'And how would Lady Massillon look in a dressing-gown and her hair down? "'I shall never know.' "'Meanwhile, he liked Eve's demeanour, its vivacity and simplicity. "'I'm afraid I'm still in love with her,' the strange fellow reflected, and said aloud, "'You better kiss me. I shall have an awful headache if you don't.' And Eve reluctantly kissed him with the look of a martyr on her face. Within a few minutes Mr. Prohack had dismissed his wife, and was descending the stairs in a dressing-gown which rivalled hers. The sight of him in the unknown world of the basement floor, as he searched unaided for the servants' hall, created an immense sensation, far greater than he had anticipated. A nice young girl, whom he had never seen before, and as to whom he knew nothing except that she was probably one of his menials, was so moved that she nearly had an accident with a tea-tray which she was carrying. "'What is your name?' Mr. Prohack benignly asked. "'Selina, sir.' "'Where are you going with that tea-tray and newspaper?' "'I was just taking it upstairs to Machin, sir. She's not feeling well enough to get up yet, sir.' Mr. Prohack comprehended the greatness of the height to which Machin had ascended. Machin, a parlour-maid, drinking tea in bed, and being served by a lesser creature, who evidently regarded Machin as a person of high power and importance on earth. Mr. Prohack saw that he was unacquainted with the fundamental realities of life in Manchester Square. "'Well,' said he, "'you can get some more tea for Machin. Give me that.' He took the tray. Oh, "'No, no, you can keep the newspaper.' The paper was the daily picture. As he held the tray with one hand and gave the paper back to Selina with the other, his eye caught the headlines. West End Sensation. Mrs. Prohack's Pearls Pinched. He paled, but he was too proud a man to withdraw the paper again. No doubt the daily picture would reach him through the customary channels after Machin had done with it, accompanied by the usual justifications about the newsboy being late. He could wait. "'Which is the servants' hall?' said he. Serena's manner changed to positive alarm, as she indicated in the dark subterranean corridor the door that was locked on the prisoner. Not merely the presence of Mr. Prohack had thrilled the basement floor. There was a thrill greater even than that. 
and Mr. Prohack, by demanding the door of the servants' hall, was intensifying the thrill to the last degree. The key was on the outside of the door, which he unlocked. Within, the electric light was still burning in the obscure dawn. The prisoner, who sprang up from a chair and curtsied fearsomely at the astonishing spectacle of Mr. Prohack, was fat in a superlative degree, and her obesity gave her a middle-aged air to which she probably had no right by the almanac. She looked quite forty, and might well have been not more than thirty. She made a typical London figure of the nondescript industrial class. It is inadequate to say that her shabby black-trimmed bonnet, her shabby sham fur coat half hiding a large dubious apron, her shabby frayed black skirt and her shabby immense amorphous boots, it is inadequate to say that these things seem to have come immediately out of a tenth-rate pawn-shop. The woman herself seemed to have come, all of a piece with her garments, out of a tenth-rate pawn-shop. The entity of her was at any rate homogeneous. It sounded no discord. She did nothing so active as to weep, but tears, obeying the law of gravity, oozed out of her small eyes, and ran in zigzags, unsummoned and unchecked, down her dark-red cheeks. "'Oh, sir,' she mumbled in a wee, scarcely articulate voice, "'I'm a respectable woman, so help me God.' "'You shall be respected,' said Mr. Rohack. "'Sit down and drink some of this tea and eat the bread and butter. "'No, I don't want you to say anything just yet. "'No, nothing at all.' When she got the tea into the cup, she poured it into the saucer and blew on it and began to drink loudly. After two sips she plucked at a piece of bread and butter, conveyed it into her mouth, and before doing anything further to it, served up some more tea. And in this way she went on. Her table manners convinced Mr. Prohack that her claim to respectability was authentic. "'And now,' said Mr. Prohack, gazing through the curtained window at the blank wall that ended above him at the edge of the pavement, so as not to embarrass her, "'will you tell me why you spent the night in my area?' "'Because someone locked the gate on me, sir, when I was hiding under the shed where the dustbins are.' "'I quite see,' said Mr. Prohack. "'I quite see. "'But why did you go down into the area? "'Were you begging or what?' "'Me begging, sir,' she exclaimed, and ceased to cry, "'fortified by the tonic of aroused pride. "'No, of course you weren't begging,' said Mr. Prohack. "'You may have given to beggars.' "'That I have, sir,' she cried again. "'But you don't beg. "'I quite see. "'Then what?' "'It's no use me trying to tell you, sir. "'You won't believe me.' Her voice was extraordinarily thin and weak, and seldom achieved anything that could fairly be called pronunciation. "'I shall,' said Mr. Prohack. "'I'm a great believer. You try me. You'll see.' "'It's like this. I, I was converted last night, and that's where the trouble began, if, if it's the last word I ever speak.' "'Theology,' murmured Mr. Prohack, turning to look at her and marvelling at the romantic quality of basements. There was a mission on at the Methodist in Paddington Street, and you know I went. It seems strange to me to be going into a Methodist, seeing how I am so friendly with Mr. Milcher. Uh, who is Mr. Milcher? Milcher's the sexton at St. Nicodemus, sir. Oh, I should say sacristan. They call him sacristan instead of sexton, because St. Nicodemus is high, as I dare say you know, sir, living so close. Mr. Prohack was conscious of a slight internal shiver which he could not explain, unless it might be due to a subconscious premonition of unpleasantness to come. "'I know that I live close to St. Nicodemus,' he replied. "'Very close. Too close. 
but I don't know how high St. Nicodemus was. However, I am interrupting you. He perceived with satisfaction that his gift of inspiring people with confidence was not failing him on this occasion. Well, sir, as I was saying, it, it might, as you might say, seem, seem strange to me popping like that into the Methodist, seeing what Milcher's views are. But my mother was a Methodist in Canterbury, a great place for dissenters, sir, North London, you know, sir, and they do say blood's thicker than water. So there I was, and the, the mission are going on, and as soon as ever I got inside that chapel, I knew I was done in. I never felt so all overish in all my days, and before I knew where I was I had found salvation, and I was so happy you couldn't believe. I come out of that Methodist as free like as ever as I was coming out of a hospital. God knows I've been in a hospital often enough for my varicose veins in the lakes, sir. You might almost have guessed I had them, sir, from the kind way you told me to sit down, sir. And I was just wondering how I should break it to Milcher, sir, but because me passing St. Nicodemus made me think of him not as I am not always thinking of him. And I looked up at the clock. You know it's the only illuminated church clock in the district, sir. And the clock was just on eleven, sir, and I waited for it to strike, sir. And it didn't strike. My feet was rooted to the spot, sir, but no, that clock didn't strike, and then all of a sudden it rushed over me about that young woman asking me all about the tower and the clock, and telling me as her young man was so interested in church towers, and he wanted to go up. And would I lend her the keys at the tower door, because Milcher always gives me the bunch of church keys to keep for him, while he goes into the horse and groom public house, sir? I'm not caring to take church keys into a public house. He's rather particular, sir. They are, especially when they're sacristans. It, it rushed over me, and I says to myself, Bolsheviks! And I thought I should have swooned it, but I didn't. Mr. Prohack had to make an effort in order to maintain his self-control for the mumblings of this fat lady were producing in him the most singular and the most disturbing sensations. "'If there's any tea left in the pot,' said he, I, "'I think I'll have it.' "'And welcome, sir,' replied the fat lady. "'But there's only one cup, but, but I've had yet but hardly drunk out of it, sir.' Mr. Prohack first of all went to the door, transferred the key from the outside to the inside, and locked the door. Then he drank the dregs of the tea out of the sole cup, and seeing a packet of Mr. Brule's gold-flaked cigarettes on the mahogany sideboard, he ventured to help himself to one. "'Yes, sir,' resumed the flat lady. "'I, I nearly swooned it, and I, I couldn't feel happier no more until I'd made a clean breast of it all to Milcher. And, uh, and I was setting off for Milcher when it struck me all of a heap, as I promised the young lady with a turned-up nose, as I wouldn't say nothing about the keys to nobody. It was very awkward for me, sir, me being converted and anxious to do right, and not knowing which was right and which was wrong.' But a promise is a promise, whether you're converted or not. That I do hold. Anyhow, I says to myself, I must see Milcher, and I tell him the clock hasn't struck eleven. And I prayed as hard as I could for heavenly guidance, and I was just coming down the square on my way to Milcher's, when who should I see get out of a taxi and run into this house but that young lady and her young man? I said in my haste that was an answer to prayer. But I'm not so sure now, sir, as I wasn't presuming too much. I could see there was something swanky going on here, and I said to myself, "'That young lady's gone in. She'll come out again. She's one of the guests she is,' I said. "'And him too. And I'll wait till she does come out, and then I'll catch her and have it out with her, even if it means policeman.' And the area gate being unfastened, I slipped down the area steps, so with my eye on the front door. And that was what did me. I had to sit down on the stone steps, sir, because of my varicose veins, and then one of the servants came in from the street, sir, 
I'm more like dropped down the area steps, sir, than walked, sir, and hid between two dustbins, and when the coast was clear I went up again and found gate locked and nothing doing. And it's as true as I'm standing here, sitting, I should say. Mr. Prohack paused, collecting himself, determined to keep his nerve through everything. Then he said, "'When did the mysterious young lady borrow the keys from you?' Uh, "'Last night, sir. I, I mean the night before last.' "'And where are the keys now?' "'Milcher's got em, sir. I, I lay he's up in the tower by this time, a-worrying over that clock. It'll be in the papers. You see if it isn't, sir.' "'And he's got no idea that you ever lent the keys?' "'That he has not, sir. And the question is, must I tell him?' What exactly are the relations between you and Mr. Milcher? Well, sir, he's, he's a bit dotty about me, as you might say, and he's, he's going to marry me. So he says, and, and I believe him. And Mr. Prohack reflected, impressed by the wonder of existence. This woman, too, has charm for somebody, who looks on her as the most appetizing morsel on earth. Now, he said aloud, you are good enough to ask my opinion whether you ought to tell Mr. Milcher. My advice to you is... Don't. I applaud your conversion, but, as you say, a promise is a promise, even if it's a naughty promise. You did wrong to promise. You will suffer for that, and don't think your conversion will save you from suffering, because it won't. Don't run away with the idea that conversion is a patent medicine. It isn't. It's rather a queer thing, very handy in some ways, and very awkward in others, and you must use it with common sense, or you'll get both yourself and other people into trouble. As for the clock, its stopping striking is only a coincidence, obviously. Abandon the word Bolshevik. It's a very overworked word, and wants a long repose. If the clock had been stopped from striking by your young friends, it would have been stopped the evening before last, when they went up the tower. And don't imagine there's any snub-nosed young lady living here. There isn't. She must have left while you were down among the dustbins, Mrs. Milcher. That is to be. She paid you something for your trouble, quite possibly. If so, give the money to the poor. That'll be the best way to be converted. Uh, so I will, sir. Yes, and now you must go. He unlocked the door and opened it. Quick, quietly, into the area and up the area steps, and... Uh, stop a moment. Don't you be seen in the square for at least a year. A big robbery was committed in this very house last night. You'll see it in today's papers. My butler connected your presence in the area, and quite justifiably connected it with the robbery. Without out knowing it, you've been in the most dreadful danger. I'm saving you. If you don't use your conversion with discretion, it may land you in prison. Take my advice, and be silent first, and converted afterwards. Good morning. Tut-tut. He stopped the outflow of the alarmed gratitude. Didn't I advise you to be silent? Creep, Mrs. Milcher. Creep. End of chapter 20, part 1